All right, well, this morning I would want us to talk about character. Uh, and, and I can still remember one of my, uh, one of my coaches in high school uh, trying to instill character into his athletes, this football team, after a particularly grueling practice. You know those types of practices, if you ever played any of those high school sports or whatnot, when, when practice has already happened, it's over, and then the other practice begins, right? Like, now we're running. We're times they call them um, uh, fireman drills, where you're walking across and you're, sometimes you're carrying people. And so this is one of those miserable, miserable times where everyone's just throwing up, <laughs> people are blacking out, and everyone's wishing, why did I not sign up for the bowling team? <laughs> that seems like a much more enjoyable gathering of, uh, for us athletes. Um, but... In, in, in a very much a um, remember the Titans type way, we're all just dying dead there, just exhausted. And the, our coach comes to gather us together, and he says, character is who you are when no one is watching. Character is who you are when no one is watching. And some of you come out here and, and act like your leaders. Some of you talk like you're someone to follow, but who are you when nobody is around? Who is that person? Your character is the real you, and who is that? And, and for me, this struck me so deeply in that moment, because I had just become a Christian a couple years earlier, and, 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 and when I became a Christian, there was a radical shift. Uh, I got rid of all of my Nirvana CDs, Oh, Lord, I miss them. <laughs> I got rid of all of my Nirvana CDs. I, I changed my life completely. There was a lot that I left behind, and we don't have to go into that right now. But two years later, I wanted to be known as a Christian. I wanted people to think of me as that guy, that Christian. But my life wasn't necessarily matching up with that persona. And, and it's funny how in this moment when a coach was trying to wake our team up to... You know, maybe drinking late on the weekends actually affects how you play football. That was his goal. <laughs> Wasn't necessarily my problem in that moment. <laughs> but, but, but God used that message to wake me up to this truth of character, of who you are when no one's looking. Who is that? When your parents aren't watching you, when you don't have the eyes of someone watching you, when you don't get to post it, who is that real you? Well, the last few weeks we've been looking at the blueprints of a healthy church, and we began this series talking about the, the universal call for leaders, how every single one of us is called to lead by serving. Uh, but then we took two weeks to look at, at what an elder is and, and what do they smell like, meaning what do they do. Um, TJ came up to me and said, oh, that's what an elder smell, smells like. <laughs> Thank you, TJ. But today I want to ask, who? Who is qualified for such a task as this? Usually in our American culture, we measure our worth, who we are, based on what we've accomplished. We live in a what have you done for me lately? I can sing that, but I won't. Society. What, what's your value? What can you do? What skills do you have? How hard did you work this week? I mean, just think about it. Every time you talk to someone, you say, what's your name? What do you do? 
It is instinctual in us. We want to know what someone does. We prioritize competence. What you can do over character, who you actually are. Don't you see that to be true? Let me say that again because it's important. Today in America, though we say character counts, even in the church, that character is critical, and yet we as the American church prioritize what you can do over your character, who you are. And this is, in fact, it flies in the face of everything Scripture teaches. And so today I want us to see character over competence. Character above competence. And so what does biblical eldership emphasize? What are the requirements to be an elder? Character over competence. And so today I want to look at this in three ways. I want to look at the quali a, a qualifier, the qualifications, and get this, the character. Yes, I spelled character with a Q to make my alliteration work. Uh, no, this is not a nod to QAnon. Uh, so, so qualifiers, qualifications, and Q character. Also, side note, I have to publicly repent for my illustration uh, on Homer's uh, and the Odyssey last week. <laughs> I got the author and the character mixed up, so please forgive me for that. Okay, let's move into the sermon. <laughs> but as we kick off this, this sermon, one qualifier that, that, that acts like an elephant in the room, that feels like it could derail this whole conversation, is Paul's use in describing an elder as, or overseer as a male. He says, husband of one wife in the passage here, or literally it says, a one wife man. And the church throughout its history has extrapolated this in this text to mean some pretty terrible things. In, in her phenomenal book, I, I encourage you to look at it, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Cobes Dumez tells how church leaders in, in the 1980s literally said Christ-likeness and manhood were synonymous. Hmm. No, that's you creating God in your, in your own image. And when you create a God in your own image and you worship that, then you're not actually worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping an idol. And so no wonder we have other books like Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, where toxic masculinity was and is today the air that we breathe. And so we as a church need to repent of the ways we, we just abused our women from the terrible misogynistic ways we twisted and stretched texts like this and others to mean more than was actually written there. And so we need you to know here at Mosaic, we believe that every member, not just the men, every member exercises her and his gifts and abilities to the utmost. Because the gifts of the Spirit, as Malcolm said, are not gender specific. No, the church needs to repent of the ways that we've neglected critical leaders and we've relegated them to just other specific roles in a church. And so we absolutely need women teachers, leaders, shepherds, professors, leading teams, setting the agenda. They're present, they're involved, and they're vocal in our session in deacon meetings. Why? Because we are being swayed by the culture of today? No. Or 
Is it because we hold such a high view of Scripture that we believe the most complete expression of God's image is one that embodies attributes both male and female? That we need both. And so just as God as, is presented to us as our Father, we also hear in Scripture that He's presented to us, and it says, like, like a mother hen. Yes, the culture of the day may have had a lower view of women, but Scripture itself speaks very highly of women in their essential contribution. And so I want everyone here at Mosaic to be clear on this. In many cases, the Bible encourages women to exercise their teaching and speaking gifts when the church is gathered. Specifically, women are empowered to exercise the gift of prophecy, of speaking God's word to the community, both in Old and in the New Testaments. The prophet Joel, speaking of the coming day, says God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. And we see that prophecy fulfilled in the book of Acts. In Luke's gospel, we are told how the prophet, prophetess Anna, who lived her whole life in the temple, spoke of God to those who were waiting for his coming redemption. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives detailed instructions about how women are to adorn themselves when they prophesy as the church gathers to worship God. Timothy, who Paul writes a letter to, would not have known the scriptures had it not been from his mother and grandmother teaching it to him in his very infancy. The Samaritan woman at the well, after encountering Jesus Christ, goes back to her town and tells everyone of a man who knew all this about her. Similarly, it was the women that God chose to be the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection. God is going to work through our women. So what are we doing, church? After God rescues the nation of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, it was Miriam, the prophetess, and other women that declared this song of deliverance that is just theologically rich. And then we can think of Mary, when she has her great song that we, 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 we study for centuries. At Advent time, Mary's theologically rich song that is just beautiful. I mean, the Bible praises women's role in this. They also praise women's leadership. It speaks of Deborah as a judge for Israel. And we are going to celebrate that. And we need to celebrate that we have our first woman and person of color as a vice president. I mean, that's a big deal. We're not talking about policies. We're talking about dignity affirmed. And so God works mightily through his daughters. So we at Mosaic will not miss out on this blessing by adopting a corrupt doctrine of our sisters. And so at every level, women will be instrumental in leading and serving his church. Again, it's because we have a high view of scripture that we believe this. Scripture shows this to be true. And God's Imago Day is being imprinted on every single man, woman, and child. And so that's why we adopt that belief. But it's also because of our high view of Scripture that Paul's words here to Timothy are actually God-breathed, literally God's words, that we see he says the qualifications are a one-woman man. And so there's no getting around this. And so what all the Scriptures as we nominate the shepherds to serve does not mean others are not shepherding or that we have to adopt a corrupt view of how God works. 
and I know it's complicated. I know that you have questions. We have questions. And so we would love, if you want to talk to us, come speak with me, Malcolm, Missy, Paniota, any of your Bible study leaders. We would love to talk more about this. But this is one thing we said we, we need to address because the scripture addresses it here. So we've also added a few books and resources at the back table if you want to look at that. Now let's, let's take some time after we looked at this qualifier to look at the actual qualifications of an elder. Now it says qualifications, not, not preferences. Paul plans a church and tells Titus, I'm leaving you here to appoint elders. And let's just walk through this text in verse 6. If anyone is, is above reproach, this is the overarching, all-embracing qualification that, that Paul uses for an elder. It means to be free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct. I mean, this is, this is someone who has earned your trust over time, and so critics cannot discredit them or, or argue that they're unfit to be an elder. There, there's no reason for us to mistrust them. They're above that reproach. And, and then it says a husband of one wife, and as we heard, besides that implication we already addressed, one, one other is that the elder is not married to more than one person, which is not really something culturally we have a, a, an issue with, but it also means that an elder is faithful to his wife and to her alone. And this carries with it one who is not addicted to pornography, someone who is faithful to their one love. Also, it's not saying that an elder must be married. That's another thing that some people have debates on. And, I, and, and it would be an interesting debate because if Paul required elders to be married, he flatly contradicts that in 1 Corinthians 7, where he outlines the distinct advantages of singleness. So if that was the debate, then Paul and Jesus would not be qualified to be elders as well. So I, I don't think that's true. And so the same argument can be said about the next qualification, for his believers are children. But it's not saying that we must have children. Again, that's kind of the same, same way we think about that. Uh, no, it's saying if he does have children, so not a requirement, but just if there are children, the text says that they are believers. Now, again, there is some debate on this. Of, does it literally mean that? That your kids have to be believers? I personally think it's a good quality because <laughs> we all desperately want, I want all of my children to come to the faith, but I also know that only God can bring them to that faith. And so that, that, that is something that we, we believe that is in God's hands, but the text literally says, it says that children have faith or it could be said that they are faithful. And so it gives you room to go, what does that mean? And so I think it's helpful to look at the separate set of qualifications that Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. So we're looking at Titus 1, but 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are kind of the, the two landmarks for the qualifications. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, he says, An elder must manage his own household well. And then Paul gives the reasoning for that verse in verse 5. He says, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the argument is just logical. If you walk into an elder's home... And, and the kids are just wildly rebellious, shooting crossbows into crowded streets. I don't know, <laughs> maybe not that extreme. They, they don't talk to one another. They hate each other. They want nothing to do with God. Then maybe this elder shouldn't be serving as an elder. Maybe he should be caring for his own home. Why? Because we, out of love for the family, go love your family well. 
But two, if we're asking a shepherd to be in homes and to care for God's children, then they should be able to care for their own children. Does that make sense? For me personally, this means that I have two households that I'm in, that I, I, is in my care, my families and our churches. And, and, and pastors can spend all of their time dreaming of the future of their church, pour all their creative energy in there, and not give one ounce of time to the future of their own family. This is the temptation of every single pastor I've ever met. And I have to fight against that weekly, daily. And so I encourage you to call me out when I miss this. And I'm thankful to have a, a wife who calls me out on that as well. So the list goes on. In Titus 1.6, it says that the elder is not open to the charge of debauchery. And so an elder must not be a lover of alcohol. Their, their overindulgence will interfere with their spiritual growth, is the argument. Now, this is not saying an elder cannot drink. Uh, I myself enjoy beer. Uh, as we planted Mosaic, I bartended at Brotherwell uh, on the weekends just to help out financially. <laughs> but Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he was no stranger to it. So that, 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 that's, that can't mean that you cannot have that. But, but no one who has worked with people or, or families of people who are victims to alcohol abuse, no one who knows that actually jokes about this. An elder cannot be accused of having a problem here because we have to see the destructive power of what alcoholism can do. How it can destroy families and it can kill. So an elder has to be above that. Let's keep going down the list. Verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There's that trait again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. There's that one again. Or violent or greedy for gain. Have you ever met an arrogant pastor? <laughs> I love to talk back. Oh, gosh. Has an elder ever been quick-tempered with you? Mm. Don't these traits disqualify them? I mean, it says these are, these are qualifications, not preferences. These, these, no way should those traits mark an elder. That's what it's saying the elder cannot be. But in verse 8, here's what they should be. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable, hospitality. I mean, it's, it's this concrete expression of Christian love and, and, and family life. An elder should always be looking to make you feel like you're at home in their presence. That you feel like I'm just, I'm just myself when I'm with them. That's hospitality. Aren't there people like that that you know that just make you feel that way? That, that make you feel that you are at home, even in the, even outside of your own home. They invite you into the, your, their lives. They ask you about yourself. I mean, I know it's really tricky with COVID and all of that, but before and hopefully after, our kitchen tables are, can just be a powerful thing. To just invite people to our kitchen tables to talk with them, to ask them about their lives. And so every single one of us, every single one of us, has a, if we have a kitchen table, ha has a powerful evangelistic tool right in their, in their living room or in their kitchen. And so just by giving someone a warm meal, it's a powerful thing. And so an open home is a, is a sign of an open heart. Then it says self-controlled, upright, holy, 
discipline. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He says that an elder must hold firm to the word so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Not just that it sounds good, but sound doctrine. And so here's one of the few competencies that the scripture does give an elder. That they are able to teach. Not that they have, they have to be a great orator, that they, but they're able to teach the scriptures, to feed the sheep, to feed God's word, and to protect from outsiders. And so Calvin says that a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves and thieves. But if you look at this whole list here, 90% of the qualifications listed here are on the person's character. Not their competency. It's, it's who you are, not what you can do. And did you see anything in here about how an, an elder should be able to, to run a startup? How, how they should be great gatherers of people, that they can draw a crowd? I mean, isn't that what we want in our elders and shepherds and pastors? Isn't the standards that we put on our elders in a church? It's not who are you, it's what can you do? And when we focus on what someone can do for us, on who they really are, on what really matters, have they actually been with Jesus? And would they lead me to Jesus? Would they introduce me to Jesus? Can they actually shepherd me? This is not to say that we we ignore competencies, that we would say, let's let's nominate incompetent elders. No, it's helpful. qualifier, the qualifications, and now let's look at the Q character. What you do comes from who you are. And so we prioritize who someone is over what they do. Because pastors, elders, shepherds that are devoid of character have hurt the church too much. Hurt the church too much for us to take this lightly. And so we must take this seriously. But as you look over this list and you lay it next to 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders, how does it make you feel if you were thinking about that? Does it make you feel like that Paul is asking for an elder to be perfect? To be blameless? I mean, what do you think when you look at it? I, mean, I think one very dangerous thing we can do to our elders is to put so much on them and put them on this very high pedestal that they become lonely up there and then that they are they're inapproachable. And we, those elders can never live up to our expectations of them. And so, no, I don't think the Bible is asking for elders to be perfect. But Paul is asking, what is the elder's character? Who are they when no one is looking? Who are your elders and your pastors when no one is looking? And I think the difficult thing about judging or, or, or evaluating character is there, there's no multiple choice exam for us to, to find out um, if you're well thought of by outsiders. Like, how do you discern character? If you lie once, are you a liar? If, if, you, if you just vent one day, are you just an argumentative and a divisive person? How do you do this? 
Church planner Bob Finn says, no character is formed over time. You don't just wake up one day and have godly character. Oh, I'm godly. <laughs> character that you currently have has been formed over time by small choices and decisions that have molded you and shaped your being. And so character is formed over time, but character is also, dis it, it, it is discerned in community. And so it's the people around you who are the best judge of your character. Like, would, would your kids say, yes, definitely, you should serve in that regard because I see you, you love people. You are hospitable. Or w would your spouse say, really? You're, you're going to go for that? <laughs> Interesting, right? Our, the people in our community see the real us. That sounds scary? No, it's a good thing. It's good. It's good. We, we need to trust them. Lastly, character is best evaluated under pressure. I mean, all of us can put up a good show when we need to. In fact, most of us are constantly striving to, to keep up our appearances that we look good to other people. But, but what are you like after an exhausting day of work? What are you like after an emotionally draining interaction with someone? What are you like after you and your spouse get into a fight? Who is that person? That's what we're looking at. Again, why such a high standard for elders? We're asking elders to do all of this work to serve God's church as they shepherd the flock. And, and we're saying, don't lower the bar. God's people are too precious. I mean, why would God do all this? Because an elder is entrusted with God's dearest and most costly possessions, his children. And therefore, as a steward of God's household, elders have access to people's homes and hearts. And we cannot take that lightly. But because there's always a need for more elders, there's a temptation to just nominate anybody to serve in that role. And in churches... Do what all of us do when we're confronted with God's holy standard. One, when we're given God's holy standard, one, we try to lower the bar. Maybe these are mere suggestions, not qualifications for an elder. Or second, we make excuses for our sin, and so we build ourselves up and lower the bar. And so we make excuses for our sin. Like, you know, if you knew the whole story, you would understand why I had to go 85 miles per hour, officer. Right? We always have a way to, to shift the blame. But both ends of the spectrum, whether we reduce God's law or we, we make ourselves look better by, by embracing you know, examples or reasons that we shouldn't have the blame, both routes are not helpful. Both routes are, are, are very bad to discern character, bad to put forward for God, bad for an elder, bad for every human being. But here's the beauty of the gospel. We can be honest about our sin. Because we know that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul, a fellow elder, said, of whom I am the foremost. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. Elders and all of us alike do not have to pretend to be super saints. We don't have to try to clean ourselves up to come to God. No, absolutely no. That's not Christianity. Come as you are. Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes the least. He welcomes the last. He welcomes the lost. Come as you are. That's who he's after. And an elder's job is to be the chief repenter in a group 
of sinners is to lead the way in repenting. And so an elder is only considered hospitable because he knows Christ was hospitable to him. He's only able to have reputation of, of, what one, of one who cares for his household because Christ cared for him. This is Christ's character. And that's where the elder draws his character from. Who was Christ when he was tempted? Who was Christ when no one was around? When no one was looking? Who was he in the dark when the devil came to him and tempted him with all the riches and the pleasures of the world? Who was Jesus then when no one was watching? And it's out of immense love for you and me that even when we were completely addicted to anything and everything but him, he commits himself to us. This is the greatest news in the world. And elders have the joy of sharing this good news with other sinners. Like we have the joy of sharing this great news because of, of who we are and whose we are. That determines what we do, not the other way around. And so for those of you who are enslaved to pornography, who are addicted to alcohol, who are not well thought of by outsiders, our hope and prayer is that you would one day be shepherding God's church. Why? Because you'll know firsthand what true grace and mercy is. And it's those who've tasted compassion and grace that can give it to others. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. You'll know deeply who you are when you're confronted with that type of grace. That you love me even now? That I'm loved. And you cannot give what you don't have. You can't give grace if you've never experienced grace. But if you experience this grace, it starts to change you, it starts to form you, and to be the shepherd of God's people that, that pe God's people need. That's what a real elder looks like and smells like. That's who God gives to his church. That's who we want shepherding Mosaic. And so would you join me in prayer for God to raise up these shepherds to lead us? Let's pray.